0: And we actually thought that our go-to-market strategy was we were going to pay a digital development shop in Nashville, Tennessee, to build the website and mobile app, and we would market it, and then we would just be off and running. And nothing was further from the truth on how it unfolded. Welcome to Two-Sided, the Marketplace podcast, brought to you by ShareTribe.
1: Hi, I'm Shurd, CMO at ShareTribe, and I'm your host. Welcome to the final interview episode for this season. We'll do one more episode, but that won't be an interview. Instead, I will create a compilation or review episode of what I think were the most interesting lessons that we gleaned from the amazing conversations that we've had here. I'm hoping to make it into some kind of uh, too-long-didn't-listen version of the entire season. But more about that next week. For this week, we have Brian Clayton on the show. Brian is the co-founder of GreenPal, a marketplace for lawn care, which has an annual turnover of around $20 million, 100,000 active users, and is growing 100% year-on-year. I mean, this is an amazing story. I'm trying hard not to spoil it, but I loved hearing this. Brian started his first lawn mowing business at 16. He worked on that for 15 years and grew it into a small empire, the biggest lawn care business in the state of Tennessee. Now, For some people, that'd be their life's work, but Brian, seeing the rise of online marketplaces and platforms such as Uber, Airbnb, Postmates, etc. He decided that this is the time to sell his company and start a new one. To build an online tech platform for lawn care with his two best friends none of them having any experience with building software. I mean, isn't that a recipe for success? I really don't want to spoil anymore, so here is my conversation with Brian Clayton on how they built GreenPal. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank
1: you for joining, actually. I was actually quite excited about this one because this is the first business-to-consumer or B2C. I've mostly spoken to B2B marketplaces this season, so I was really looking forward to this one. And I always ask this first question because, like, well, I'm not a professional interviewer, so I have, like, a very formulaic approach. But I think that in your case, this is actually a really relevant question because I think it will add to understanding your business and the background. So before we dive into GreenPal and all the marketplace specific things. Could you tell us a little bit about your background before you started Green Pal?
0: Yeah. So before I started Green Pal, I actually started just a traditional lawn mowing business. My dad, when I was 16 years old, came into my room on a hot summer day and said, hey, we've got a job to do. And he made me, forced me to go mow the neighbor's yard. And he and I went over and cut the neighbor's grass and we made 20 bucks and split it. And ever since then, I was just hooked. I was hooked on being an entrepreneur. I was hooked on owning my own business. By the end of that summer, I think I had something like 10 or 20 lawns in the neighborhood that I was mowing, and I grew that little lawn mowing business into a real company throughout my high school years and college years. By the time I was 24 years old, I had 50 employees, and over a 15-year period of time, I grew that into an actual landscaping company, the largest in the state of Tennessee, over $10 million a year in revenue, 150 employees, and sold that business in 2013. And so I knew the landscaping business very well, intimately. I had the scars over a very long period of time. And I just saw what technology was doing for ride sharing, what marketplaces were doing for accommodations and marketplaces like Airbnb and and how Craigslist was being disrupted. And I just knew that a marketplace for the lawn mowing business was going to exist. And so I put a team together and started working on it.
1: Yeah, so that's great that you had this, let's say, higher level industry overview that you just saw this coming. Because usually I have the question like, well, (laughs) how did you get the idea? But in your case, that's pretty obvious. Like when you set out to do this, what were the things that made you think that this is going to work for lawn mowing?
0: Well, I knew that fundamentally as a product, it would work because over time, as I built my first business from zero to 150 employees, my company changed from just a lawn mowing business for residential clients into a full scale commercial landscaping maintenance company. And as time went on, we no longer serviced residential clients. They just no longer, the economics just didn't work for our business. We were doing big, large scale contracts for apartment complexes, airports, commercial office complexes, things of that sort. But we would still get 20 or 30 phone calls a day from people begging us to just come mow their yard every two weeks. And we had to kindly decline those requests. And one of our values in running that business was to always try to add value, to always try and be helpful. And so we would maintain a list of small landscape service providers by the phone. And my secretary or office manager would refer basically for free these people that were looking for a basic lawn cutting service to a list of people that we had. And what we began to find out was that we were, in a sense, like connecting service multiple times a day. And we were just doing it as a favor. And a lot of times, these people would call back and say, hey, I called those three phone numbers you gave me, but nobody would pick up. And so it became to be kind of a pain in the butt. But I learned just by experiencing that on a daily basis that, yes, you wouldn't think it'd be hard to find a good lawn cutting service to come out and show up on the day they're supposed to come, but it actually is. And so I knew that this problem existed. I've seen it thousands of times over 15 years. And so I knew from a problem solution standpoint that it was a good idea and needed to be done. What I under indexed on and what I underestimated was the difficulty of making the shift from a blue collar entrepreneur to a tech entrepreneur. I didn't understand really the complexities of building software, marketing and distributing software, of what building a marketplace would even be like. I had no idea. And if I had known how hard it was going to be, I probably would have never gotten started if I'm honest. So it took two or three years for my team and I to really learn, Okay, how do you design software? How do you build it? How do you build a marketplace? What are the nuances that go into that? And it just it just took years and years of trial and error. And so we finally started to get some momentum going.
1: Yeah, there's a lot in that story already. Like, I would like to break it up a little bit. So the first thing going back, because I often ask about like, well, you know, what is your MVP? Like, how did you validate the idea? But you were basically already doing that while you were running the other business. Like you had like a sort of a no code marketplace going on there with people just calling in and asking like, hey, so that that's that's clear but when you say like you wouldn't expect it to be difficult but still is difficult so then we get into the problem part. So what are the problems that you saw that GreenPal is now solving? Like what problems? Like what's the value there for consumers early on yeah. specifically?
0: A couple things I'll touch on. You said no-code marketplace, which is the first time I've ever heard that and it's actually a good thing to consider. We had something very similar in the first two years of the business, we had a crappy code marketplace. And yeah. so it was a very hard to use product. It was very difficult, it was clunky, it was unreliable. And basically for the first year, our product was some crap that we cobbled together and a little chat bubble in the lower right-hand corner. And basically, in a sense, we would hand crank everything the introduction of the quoting process to the homeowners, actually calling the service providers to make sure that they would show up on time. If they didn't show up, calling around like crazy, trying to find a, a replacement. We spent three years in Nashville, Tennessee, trying to perfect the process of a homeowner, signs up onto the platform, gets five quotes in less than a minute, reads reviews, and looks at data about these service providers, and then hires one, and then, they actually show up on the day they're supposed to do the job and do a good job. It took us three years just to figure that out. And so we went from no code to low code to crappy code to crappy product and just rebuilt this thing 100 times. And still even here we are seven years later, we're going to do over $20 million in GMV this year and have over 100,000 active users. We are still improving on that cycle of, How do we get you better quotes, faster, at a better price, and make sure that the service provider shows up and does a great job for you?
1: Yeah. You mentioned that it was a hard shift from like a blue collar entrepreneur to a tech entrepreneur. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, where did you find the right people? What approach did you take initially? Because that is, I think, a a situation where a lot of people, even if you're not like, Okay, maybe not as blue collar as lawn mowing, but we often get loads of people who are just in a specific industry and they're like, hey, this industry that I've been working in for 20 years could really use a marketplace, but I don't know the first thing about tech. So it would be great to listen to your story.
0: Yeah, great question. So the first thing we did was my two co-founders and I, who are actually my two best friends, we just started this business and we actually thought that our go-to-market strategy was we were going to pay a digital... Development shop in Nashville, Tennessee, to build the website and mobile app. And we would market it and then we would just be off and running. And nothing was further from the truth on the, how it unfolded. We spent $120,000 in the summer of 2013 building the first version of GreenPal and we launched it and we had like six users to try it out. What we realized was okay. If we're going to be in the technology business, we need to learn how to design, build, execute, launch, and distribute technology. We had to yeah. learn how to do all of these things ourselves, my two co-founders and I. And the first thing we did was we passed out over 100,000 door hangers around Nashville, Tennessee, to try to get people to use this thing. Yeah. And I got bit by a dog while doing this. And I realized that 10 users per dog bite was not a scalable user acquisition strategy. And so going through that painful process of grinding it out and trying to get people to use the first version, we realized, okay, if we're going to be in the technology business, we got to really take a look in the mirror and understand, okay, we're going to have to learn how to do design software, build software, and distribute, most importantly, distribute software. When you're getting started, you know, I think a lot of new entrepreneurs under index on the idea of how many hours it's going to take to get something from zero to one. And in the early days, you have to put in the 70, 80, 100-hour weeks because half of your time is just learning about the things that you need to do, and then the other half is actually doing. them. So in the first four or five years of GreenPile with my two co-founders and I, poring over blogs, watching YouTube videos, listening to podcasts like this, taking Udemy classes, just learning the skills that we needed to then go and then execute. And it wasn't, if we weren't willing to do that, we would have never been able to get some momentum behind this thing because if you're going to be in the tech business, you have to be able to build and distribute tech.
1: Yeah. So now we really go into the stuff that you didn't know about this, of course, like the tech stuff. So what were the things that you did know from your history that gave you benefit when launching this platform?
0: Yeah, we knew a couple of things. We knew that it was hard to find a good lawn care service. We knew it was hard to get the lawn services on the phone and to get them to give you a quote. And so we knew that in the traditional sense, if you want to hire a lawn mowing service, you need to get on Craigslist, Facebook, Yelp, ask your friends, and you need to just like dial for dollars. And you're going to have to call like 15 people just to get two quotes. So we knew that if we could make that whole thing a lot simpler and just enable homeowners to have a live connection to a multitude of lawn mowing services to get quotes back like that, we knew that, that if we solved that problem, that we would be solving a problem for users to make them want to try it out and keep using it. Yeah. We also knew that reviews were going to be important. So we knew we had to find a way to collect those and tie those to actual transactions and to make and showcase those. And so that was in the first version. What we didn't know was we assumed that price would be the most important factor with homeowners choosing who they wanted to hire. I just thought, after spending years in the industry, how competitive it is and cutthroat that it is, that price would be the ultimate decision-making factor. What we found out after the first version was that price wasn't. It was actually, will they show up on the day I need it? Will they show up on time? Will they be there? Because when they come to Green Powell, the grass is already three feet tall. They've got a dinner party this afternoon, and they're desperate. And they've already tried to leave a dozen voicemails. They've already tried to do this thing the traditional way. And so when they arrive at Green Pals door, they've exhausted all of those things. And so actually getting them out there and making sure they show up on time and do a good job was more of a thrust for our value proposition than get the cheapest price in town. And so yeah. that was one thing that we, it was assumptions assumption that we had in the early, you know, in the first version that wasn't true. And we wouldn't have figured that out had we not got it launched, got it into people's hands, and actually spoke to them in their living room at a coffee shop Then we come to realize that price was subordinated to speed and reliability.
1: Yeah, so great, because like now you mentioned two things like in the coffee shop, in the lawnmower, so another important thing I think that most of the successful marketplaces do is talk to the users. So it sounds like you did that.
0: Absolutely. So. A lot of the hard things about building something that's never existed before, as Peter Thiel calls it, going from zero to one, is that there's no playbook. There's no roadmap. You don't know what to do. You don't know what's going to work, what's not going to work. So you do have to follow the lean startup methodology and just try stuff and fail and fail and fail until you figure out what works. But one thing that can cut all of that cycle time way down is just by listening to your users, taking every opportunity you can to speak to them making sure that you're accessible and that there is a pipeline uh, from them to you. In the early days, it was, you know, after we passed out those 100,000 door hangers, we had a few hundred people using it. So in the early days, it was very hand-to-hand combat style. We would beg these people to meet us at a coffee shop and we would buy them coffee and we would talk to them and we would understand, okay, what problems did we solve for you? Where did we delight you? More importantly, where did we upset you? Where did we come up short? What problems do you wish we could have solved for you that we didn't? And this early feedback was integral to how we then built the second version ourselves, and we knew more what to build. Now, to this day, we have hundreds of thousands of people using the platform, using the technology, and we have live chat everywhere in every interface and every screen. And it's mandatory that every person on the team that we have does at least three hours a week of live chat that way they understand, okay, these are the problems we're solving, or these are where the holes are in the experience, especially me myself as CEO and also a product manager for the whole platform. It's ingrained in my soul on a consistent basis where we're coming up short and where our users want us to build and what problems they want us to solve.
1: Wow, that's some serious dedication. Yeah, that's great because like, I think it's also maybe Steve Blank who talks about this like get out of the building approach. So that really pays off in your case. You mentioned earlier also that you took a couple of years just in Tennessee because what I'm always interested in is that most marketplaces, they constrain themselves in one way, whether it's like by category or product type or by geography. Well, in your case, I mean, it's a pretty local marketplace, right? Like demand and supply need to be in the same thing. So, did you just start in Tennessee or only in Nashville or in a particular town first? Can you tell us about that?
0: So ours is a local marketplace. So we are geographically constrained. So, you know, here, fast forward, we're in every major city in the United States. And every one of those towns, cities had to be built from the ground up. And one thing that we did do right in the early days is that we read every resource we could. And one book that stood out to me was a book called Nail It, Then Scale It. And I knew that we needed to nail the playbook in our hometown first before we went to other cities. And it was excruciatingly tough because it was slow. I mean, nothing you got to understand is like my personal psychology. I went from uh, running a business, $10 million a year, you know, doing big contracts, telling people we don't want to mow your grass. to now I got a software product like, hey, can we mow your grass, please try this thing? and it was so it was humbling for me it was a really good exercise for me and so we knew that we had to make it work in Nashville consistently and reliably before we tried to go to any other cities so we spent 3 years in Nashville and then our first market outside of Nashville was Tampa Florida another year there and then it wasn't until year 3 did we launch another handful of markets and then once we started understanding okay this is how we recruit supply. This is how we recruit demand side. This is how we make sure this thing goes right. I don't know, 75% of the time. And this is the things we're doing to make sure it goes right 99% of the time. And it wasn't until we figured that out that did we understand, okay, now let's start going fast and let's start using the money we're making to fuel distribution. There's another great quote, You know, venture capital kills more startups than it does create because A lot of times they pour the money on before it's ready. And it's like pouring gasoline onto wet leaves or to use another analogy, it's like putting rocket boosters on the side of a wooden barn. And when you move too quickly before that product experience is curated and perfected, it blows apart. And so we luckily didn't make that mistake. That's why we're still here today. And a lot of Uber for X startups and marketplaces are are dead. There's a uh, graveyard full of those.
1: Yeah, no, I've seen them, yeah. Could you share a little bit about those tactics that you use to recruit supply and demand? Because, okay, we talked door hangers. Like you said, that's not a scalable approach. What were the things that worked for you early on?
0: Yeah, in the early days, we didn't really have that compelling of a value proposition for service providers, especially in markets we were just launching new. We didn't have the liquidity. And so it was very much a nuanced hand-to-hand combat hand-cranking style of recruitment for the supply side. So it was dialing for dollars on every single person that put an ad in Craigslist, every lawn care service that had a, an account on Yelp, every lawn care service that was using Facebook to try to market their business. We could identify these men and women and reach out to them and say, hey, listen, we're starting this platform in your area, it's called Green Pal. It's our goal to help you double your business in the first year. It's totally free to sign up. If you make any money on it, there's a small transaction fee, but it's free to use other than that. And you just try it out. That was the pitch we gave. And, you know, call 100 people. You might get 10 to say yes. And we just did that for years. And so we began to figure out, okay, these are the things that our supply side cares about. This is the points of our value proposition that they respond to. Then we could figure out a way to recruit these suppliers digitally. But in the early days, we didn't know and we didn't have the money. So it was kind of like, if you ate nothing but ramen noodles that week, it averaged out to five suppliers per packet of ramen noodles. Like, you know, it was just like, it was basically us, you know, and that and because we didn't have the money to, to pour into Facebook or Instagram to recruit these service providers. Now we have a much more automated streamlined approach. We do it completely digitally. We don't do any hand cranking on that side. And also we've kind of positioned ourselves as a brand in the lawn care industry, anybody that that mows grass for a living knows about us. And so they come to us organically. Now, about five, six, seven years ago, nobody knew who we were. So it was all hand-to-hand combat.
1: Yeah, but I can imagine that. I mean, if you go into new locations, right, you're still expanding, right? I would assume that going still to Craigslist and the local Facebook things is probably still the best way to acquire supply, or isn't it?
0: Today, we thank God we no longer have to do that. Okay. But for a very long time, we had to. We've spent a lot of resources. We have the best book that anybody can read to learn how to start a lawn mowing service. And so if you type into Google how to start a lawn mowing service, we pop up number one. So whether you want to use GreenPal or not to start your lawn mowing business, you come across our resources that we have put probably close to sixty or $70,000 into creating. And it is the best definitive guide to teach somebody how to do it because I wrote it and I've done it. I went from zero to $10 million a year in revenue. I sold that business. I know the lawn mowing business as good as anybody. I wrote that book and it's free. So anybody that is thinking about starting a lawn mowing business, they sometimes will come across our resources and then sometimes they will sign up. So now it's a little easier for us, but in the early days, it was hand-to-hand combat dialing for dollars.
1: Yeah. And then often when people discuss marketplace ideas, there is this problem of the repeat purchase. And if there is a steady service, like how I would expect lawn mowing to be, there is a pretty big risk of disintermediation, right? So, or like platform leakage or transaction going off platform. How's the situation with GreenPal and how do you solve that?
0: We don't really experience it that much. It's less than 1% and i think that the thing to consider is if you're building a marketplace and you're getting intermediated a lot it's indicative of a couple things one you're probably taking your take rate is too high so you're taking more value than you're delivering and it's as simple as that if somebody wants to go outside of your marketplace it's indicative of the fact that you're taking more than you're delivering and for us you got to think for service providers we get them the customer. We get their schedule organized. We get them paid on time. We make sure they know where they're supposed to be on a daily basis. We give them a place for them to accumulate all of their reviews and a place that has a showcase of, of what kind of business that they are building. We aren't their boss. They're not our subcontractor. It's not like Uber. We have a platform that they plug into and can run their whole business. Not only that, but they're making hundred grand a year on GreenPal. And when they started, they had two customers. So it's why would somebody want to go around that? Now, you know, 99% of people get that, but maybe some don't or they're short-sighted or they just don't understand. And we're, over time, we've been able to weed those players out just by understanding, okay, we know that if you're a good service provider, you should get booked for the entire lawn mowing season 65% of the time. And so if you're only getting booked 10% of the time, that means that either you stink, and so that means you need to go, or you're just intermediating the platform, and that means you need to go. So over time, we've been able to collect the data and understand what the baselines are for good performing lawn mowing services and sideline and weed out the bad actors.
1: Yeah. yeah, because that's actually because that was going to be, that's why I hesitated with the previous question, because I would assume that you are offering so much on the supplier side as a reason value for them to stay on the platform so you mentioned that you've built a whole sort of back end for them or some kind of like administrative system for them or a whole service are you charging separately for that
0: no it's sort of like ebay for power sellers amazon sellers amazon store for their power sellers etsy the list goes on and on upwork come for the network stay for the tools I don't know who said that, but it's a good quote. So, we give all of that away for free. And that's part of the strong value proposition that reinforces the use of the platform and it makes it so, as so nobody would ever want to disintermediate it if they're rational.
1: Yeah. And what's the value prop on the other side for people to stay on GreenPal? Like, as a homeowner, I've booked my yeah. first person. Why would I keep on booking? As a
0: homeowner, it's, it's a no brainer. Yeah. When you do this in the analog sense, Like I said, you have to constantly be nagging and hassling these people to show up on time. You wouldn't think you have to, but you do. And there is a mysterious condition of the disappearing lawn mowing service that just happens. For some reason, these guys and gals go out of business or they get behind or they bury you to the bottom of the route. If there's rain, they don't show up on time. Their voicemail is full. You name it. So if you just want a basic grass-cutting service once a week or once every two weeks, it's a pain in the butt to get these folks to come out when they're supposed to. GreenPal handles all of that. The other thing is, you know, how do you pay this person? Maybe you Venmo them. Maybe you leave a check onto the mat. You know, it's the pain. There's a lot of friction there. You have to physically do something on a weekly basis. With GreenPow, you just pop your credit card in or debit card, and it just happens. So there's really no reason why a homeowner would want to not use it After they use it, because for them, it's just like, it's the magic yard mowing button. You just push a button and the yard gets mowed. It's like, it's the difference between using Uber and going back to taking a yellow taxi cab.
1: Mm, Yeah, I need to get one of those buttons, actually.
0: I want to quickly (laughs) move
1: back into the service that you provide for the supply side, because I was listening to another podcast and you were describing there how the quote process goes and all the data you pull in. And I thought that was magical. Like, could you tell us a little bit about that? Because I thought that was such a cool approach.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's our mission, our goal to reduce all of the friction on both sides of the transaction for getting quotes for your lawn mowing service, getting hired, getting scheduled and completing the job and getting paid. We look for every single piece of friction in that workflow that we can solve to make it more and more streamlined, more and more magical. I don't, I don't know who said the quote, but good technology should be indistinguishable from magic. And this is the traditional way we started here, we're here now, we're trying to get closer to magic. And the way that we've looked for ways to make that process more and more streamlined is, okay, let's harness all of the data that the platform is creating, and let's leverage that and showcase that to users on both sides of the transaction so we can make this thing smoother. So as a service provider, let's say typically somebody calls you off of your Yelp page. Hey, I need a quote. I live at, you know, 1532 Main Street. Can you come out and take a look at it? You have to drive out there, look at it, walk around, maybe meet with the person, write them a written quote, leave it in the mailbox, hand it to them, hope they call you back. Can you come out Thursday? No, I can't come out Thursday, maybe Friday. Oh, I need it really done by Thursday. You got to go through all this for every single person that tries to hire you. When you use GreenPal, you get 30 of these opportunities a day. It's right you know, here. And you're presented with all of this information, okay? It's like, here's the aerial imagery of this person's property. Here's the street view of this person's property. Here's how many square foot their lot size is. Here is the average winning price on the platform for that zip code. They want their lawn mowed every two weeks and not every week. They are actually expecting a perfect job. They've indicated that. And they've also indicated that they want to hire somebody for the rest of the season. And so we give the service provider all of this rich data around the service request that, by the way, the homeowner was able to pop in in less than a minute And we're able to make this thing so much smoother than just doing it in the traditional sense on both sides of the transaction. Then on the other side, when the homeowner gets that quote, they can look at, okay, here is the service provider's quote. They have 98 reviews. They have five other lawns on Main Street nearby you. They've been booked 63% of the time for ongoing mowings. You know, We have all of this data around the performance of that service provider. And that does two things. It rewards the good actors and it weeds out the bad ones. And it also helps the homeowner make the best hiring decision they can for getting this one chore done.
1: Yeah. Well, no, because I was listening to the podcast and you were talking about, well, you know, we pull in uh, Google Maps, uh, aerial imagery, a lot of info from the municipality. Yeah, of course, like all the data is there. Like, why wouldn't you use it? So now we know all the value that you propose. Are you in competition with anyone? Are you in competition with the traditional locals? Yes, maybe. Are you in competition with other platforms, you know, Thumbtack, Craigslist still? Like how do you see your position there?
0: Yeah, so and the simplest way to answer that question is yes, we're in competition with the status quo. Unfortunately, we don't have the mind share around if you need a lawn mowing service, just go get a green pal. That is our goal is to be in the English language as like Uber is. I need my grass cut, get a green pal. And so that is our goal. And we won't stop until we are part of the English language in that manner. But we're a bootstrap business. So we don't have the ad budget to buy TV ads and things like that. It's all still very growth hacky and bootstrapping our way through liquidity in every market that we're in and growing this thing on the revenues that it delivers. That said, the competitive landscape is status quo. Unfortunately, most people don't think to even do this digitally. But let's say they do think to do it digitally and they do think to get on Google and look for a lawnmowing service. Well, then we do compete in that fashion with the likes of HomeAdvisor, Thumbtack, Angie's List. Those are like horizontal directories. And so those are quicker ways to get a list for a homeowner to pull, but they still have to dial for dollars and they still have to leave a bunch of voicemails. Some are a little better at getting some kind of transparency around reviews and maybe some kind of pricing, but you can't just order a lawn mowing service on any of those sites or mobile apps. So that is part of the competitive landscape for us digitally. And then there's a couple of other players in the Uber for lawn mowing that are doing well. They have good products, but they are more building a better landscaping company. They are top-down hierarchically owning the entire experience, and the lawn mowing service provider is a, merely a subcontractor. Our approach is different in the sense of we're a true marketplace. We give the service provider a tool set and a platform for them to plug into so they can then market themselves and build their brand on top of our technology. So we have a little bit of a different approach. It's nuanced, but it's very different than just building a technologically enabled landscaping company, which we have no desire to do. We don't want to be in the grass cutting business. We want to be in the marketplace business.
1: Yeah. Do you see like some kind of network effect, especially on the supply side? Like, do you see suppliers bringing their existing clients on board, for example, that, hey, can you just book the next one through GreenPal because it's so much easier?
0: Yeah. So around 30 percent of the service providers and we have over 10,000 that use the platform, operate their entire business on our technology. And it's our goal to move that closer to 100 percent. And one of the things that influences if a service provider uses our platform or not is if they get started in the business on GreenPal. So that's who we really try to market to on the supply side is, are you just getting started? Because if you are, boy, do we have an opportunity for you. And as you grow your entire business, you grow it on GreenPal's technology. So that said, that's a number that we're looking to move up and up and up is, okay. The service provider then runs their entire business on our technology. Then when they're mowing Mrs. Smith's yard, the neighbor asks them to mow. They just send them their link to their store, and they just get hired right on the spot. That is not the use case for most of our users. Most of them just come in the front door, but we're also looking for ways to drive more adoption on what we call supplier-led traction, supplier-led acquisition. And we're building tools to make that easier and also looking for ways to increase the percentage of service providers that use the platform to run their entire business.
1: Yeah, No, that makes sense. So what's next for GreenPal? Like you're slowly expanding geographically, I assume, other cities?
0: Yes, so for us for the foreseeable future, it's continually going deeper and deeper into all of the mid-level cities throughout the United States. So right now we're in every, to use an American term, every NFL city. So every city that has a major league football team or just a professional sports team, we have liquidity established in every one of those cities. But there's hundreds of cities that have a population of 100,000 or less or 150,000 that sit off by themselves and they aren't part of a major market. We're now tackling those cities and distributing the platform into those and what we find is we actually have an increased value proposition in those smaller markets because it's easier for us to achieve critical mass in every one of those smaller markets so it's funny like in some cases a city with a hundred thousand people will do more transactions than a city with a million and that's counterintuitive but that's just what's working for us and so for the next year or two we'll continue to go as deep as we can in those markets in the united states and then after that we'll expand into canada maybe UK, maybe Australia, other similar international markets. Beyond that, there's all kinds of interesting things that we have on our roadmap for our platform, you know, doing unique things with fintech and incorporating them into our business and offering unique financing options to our service providers for new trucks, new lawnmowers, lines of credit, things like that. The fun thing about marketplaces is when you get them rolling, you get liquidity and you get some momentum, then it unlocks all kinds of opportunities. And that's kind of what we're at the cusp of.
1: Yeah. And are you ever adding another product layer? Like uh, now we're talking just pure lawn care, right? You mentioned your previous business was more like top of the landscaping business. Are you considering expanding into those kind of services?
0: there's so much white space and so much opportunity in just this one simple service and making it ubiquitous to every household in the United States. And so we're monotically focused on that. Yes, we do have a snow removal option that homeowners can use and they can also use the platform after they've hired their lawn mowing service, they can use the same service for shrub pruning, mulch, tree trimming, things like that. But we don't have that readily available on the front door to just order like you can an Uber or a lawnmowing service. That happens downstream after you've established a relationship with your service provider. And we'll stay oriented like that for a while because we just have so much opportunity to continue to distribute this one magical experience and to everybody that needs a lawnmowing service in the United States.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. You just described super awesome journey from 16-year-old lawnmower to tech CEO is there anything, especially in the last green poll part, any advice you would like to give to people starting a marketplace? Maybe like something you would have done differently or something they should really consider doing.
0: So the reality is around marketplaces is I think it's still in its infancy for opportunities for marketplaces to, to attack use cases in the day-to-day commerce that, that exists. I think there's still a lot of opportunity. That said... I don't think there will ever be an Uber for home painters or an Uber for wedding planners. And so you kind of need to validate this idea before you just spend, you know, the next 10 years trying to build a marketplace around a use case. So it's nuanced. I think there's a lot of opportunity, but it's not necessarily the case that a marketplace can be applied to every single thing that we do in day-to-day life. I will say this, if you're planning on starting a local marketplace, if I had to do it all over again, I probably would have raised money because it's just so hard to get one of these things started from scratch. It requires a lot of money to distribute this marketplace into every single local market that you want to operate in. Now that we're doing $20 million a year, we don't need to raise money. Now we have VCs knocking on our door every single week. i like, where were you guys seven years ago? So now we actively resist raising capital because we just don't, simply just don't need it. But if I had to do it all over again, I would have raised funding to get us over the hump of the first two or three years. The other thing I would point out is a lot of times as startup entrepreneurs and technology startup entrepreneurs, we look at these grand successes, Ubers, Lyft, Airbnb, you name it, and we want to map our experience to what we see. And what we don't realize is a lot of times that founding team is on its second, third, or fourth try they've already crashed and burned two or three different marketplaces or technology products. So they already know how to do a lot of the fundamental things. So they're starting on second base or third base, whereas, you know, you're starting in the dugout. And that's something that I didn't know when I started this business. It took me three, four years just to get to the starting line. And so just be aware of that. Don't beat yourself up if it's slow going for the first year or two or three, because it's going to take you that long to learn how to do this stuff. And so like, Don't give up, I guess, is the essence of what I'm trying to say and manage your psychology in those first few years.
1: Yeah, that's great advice about the venture capital raise, because do you feel that you needed most of the money for the tech or for the distribution part?
0: For the tech, because it was me and two other dudes in an office with no windows seven days a week trying to learn how to write code and and write crappy code. And we did that for three years. If I could have had, you know, $5 bucks, I could have hired a good designer, a good product manager, a good iOS developer, a good Android developer, a good front-end guy, a good back-end guy or gal, and I could have moved a lot faster. But I didn't know what the hell I was doing, so I probably would have wasted all the money anyway. So that's why when I say that, it's like it's combined with maybe you should crash and burn a couple times before you raise money. So I guess my point is made with an asterisk. Like, fail miserably on your own, trying some crap and then on your next one raise a bunch of money and do it quick. Cause I could do now in six months what took me five years. Cause I know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Of course I mean it was a self-serving question as well because of course that's exactly the problem that Share Drive's trying to prevent that you don't have to pour like five million down the drain to get a basic product out just to validate the idea. But it would just wanted to make clear where the money would have gone to. All right. Brian, thanks so much for joining and for taking the time. Any last plugs?
0: anybody listening to this doesn't want to waste any time cutting their grass, download GreenPal in the App Store or Play Store and give it a shot. You'll get five quotes in 60 seconds and you can hire somebody to mow your grass at the touch of a button.
1: All right, thank you very
0: much, Brian. Hey, I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Two Sided, the Marketplace podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe. If you listen on iTunes, we'd also love for you to rate and give us a review. If you got inspired to build your own marketplace, go visit www.sharetribe.com. It's the fastest way to build a successful online marketplace business. Until next time.